Hey there, welcome to We've Been Had, a song-by-song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. I'm Keith Billy. I'm Chet Cook. And today we're back after another long absence. Sorry about that. Yeah, one of us had to go to Berlin like a fancy man. That's right. I had to, I don't know what I had to do. I had to do something. Well, we've established I had to not look for scorpions the way I should have. The band scorpions, not the, the animal. Either or. I failed on both fronts. Yeah, so we're back. I swear to God, there's going to be a point where we'll get these out with some regularity. Anyway, tonight we finish March 16th through 20th, 1992. We kind of finished it last month as far as the original release was concerned. Tonight is the bonus material. Uh, Songs covered are Take My Word, I Want to Be Your Dog, The Waltons Theme, and then some demo versions of songs we've already talked about. But first... An announcement. Wow, that that sounded so lame. Like, but first, an announcement. You you sounded like a like a kid who was told to put to put a like a grabber at the first front of their speech to get people's attention. <laughs> at first, Webster's Dictionary defines an announcement as. Um, oh, there's going to be plane noise tonight too, so just expect that. Um, it turns out we've been lying to you about the nature of this podcast. It is not solely about the music of Uncle Tupelo. That, uh, it's just the first season of the show that is. So after we finish walking through Anodyne, sometime later this year, we'll move into season two and walk through four albums of someone else's. Yeah, and the plan is to do multiple artists, so four in four album chunks. Yeah. Uh, we hatched this plan over over a couple of surly, furious beers and some really hot Thai food. So I was close to hallucinating. Yeah, you're in rough shape. Yeah. So hopefully, ho- hopefully, it actually is as good an idea to, as we think it is. I looked it up the next day, and like the hot food high is real. Like, huh? Like it, you really do get kind of high. Good for you. <laughs> we kind of tipped our hands. It's going to be scorpions. <laughs> four albums of scorpions. Uh, would have been much better if I would have actually like found some dirt on scorpions when I was in how Berlin. Many, how many scorpion songs do you think you could sit through consecutively? Sit through? Yeah, like so you're like you're driving you're driving to Duluth or something. It's yeah. a two hour drive. You think you could do two hours of straight scorpions? Uh, okay, here's the thing. I think I could because <laughs> I wouldn't like it, but um. Do you remember the time we were driving north of Duluth, up and down the North Shore, um, in a car where all there was to listen to was the tape single? Yeah, the single. Yes. Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. Yes, hours of that over and over. It takes two on one side and joy and pain on the other. So, I mean, like, in your Scorpion, and we did it. We did it. Um, We survived. Uh, in your Scorpion scenario, we've got multiple songs at least. Yeah, but they're shittier songs. <laughs> I, there's a point where it doesn't matter. I'm a little, I, like, I mean, I know we got to get into the meat of this. Um, it's going to be weird tonight. I feel like this is like, just in terms of songs we're covering, this is like the least essential group of songs we're ever going to cover. Yeah, it, feel, it feels a little bit like a tack on. Like, we got to do something to to sell this reissue. Yeah, well, uh, that's the... Which I, I'm sure it is, I but... I think that's it. Oh, and we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you want to jump right in, but my my sole notes on Take My Word are a self-discovery experiment in finger-picking and harmonica playing. <laughs> that pretty well covers it. I I kept expecting it to turn into something more. You know, I'm like, okay, well, vocals are going to kick in, and they never do. Nope. Nope. It, it, was... uh, it just kind of... I mean, it's a it's a cool thing. It, it's just really weird. I, I don't, I guess I disagree. I don't know if it's even that cool. I think like the main, the best thing I think this does is, you know, as an instrumental, it just like gives you a contrast to Sandusky and you can see like, oh, well, okay, they really did accomplish something with Sandusky. It's kind of hard to pull off a stripped down instrumental, right? Like uh, it's, yeah. It, uh, especially on an album that has a lot of acoustic material already. Yeah. So it's this, this is kind of one of the, the things that I struggle with is some of the versions of, of the demo songs that they put on there are kind of similar to the album versions. So yeah. it's, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to really make a, a great observation. Other than I did find out that, uh, a lot of these tracks were recorded at Longview Farms. Which is not the Longview Farm in Lee Summit, Missouri, which makes some like Uncle Tupelo geographical sense. Mm. But it's uh, it's actually in Massachusetts, and uh -huh. apparently the Stones used it as a rehearsal space because there is there is a money picture online <laughs> that I showed Keith before this of the Rolling Stones outside of this big red barn. So if you Google image search Rolling Stones Longview Farm, will you get it? Yeah, do that. And it's a cool, like the, the interior looks cool because it's a barn that's been refurbished into a recording studio. I mean, you got to think that if you are young Uncle Tupelo and it's 1991 and you're like working up demos to record and you get to like do your demos in this place where the Stones hung out, like that's that's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, there's a, so there's kind of a an interesting, so just because I didn't have a ton to say about the songs. Yeah. Um, I did just did some random Googling to see what popped if I did Uncle Tupelo Longview. And there's actually a preview excerpt from Jay Farrar's book, uh, which is called Falling Cars and Junkyard Dogs. Oh, wow. And he, he recounts this, like, just kind of this anecdote about... Uh, about when they were recording this, these demos and this stuff. And apparently one of the engineers there fished out this old tape of Keith Richards playing the piano. Okay. And he covers, this is according to Jay Farrar, he covers like a Fats Domino song, an Everly Brothers song, Jerry Lewis, and Merle Haggard. And it's a really long anecdote, but there are two things that I really love about Jay Farrar's story. Number one, his description is of the of like the recording is Keith was mixing his Teddy Boy roots with Bakersfield twang, much the same way the ice cubes are mixing with the gin in his audibly clinking glass. <laughs> as he explains on the tape, I like this gin. <laughs> and then the best part is the footnote that says in Keith Richards' book Life, he asserts that this that this recording was made in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> nice. which is glorious either way right yeah. because it's like like 
Keith Richards is convinced that he made this recording in Toronto. <laughs> I, I just love that the two of them have, you know, like the rock world version of an academic footnote war going. <laughs> like, I hope that they are dicks to each other at a conference sometime now. Which is like, I guess like Keith, Keith Richards is like, the engineer's like, I have the tape. You recorded it here. He's like, no, no, no I, th- <laughs> I think that was in Toronto. No, mate, I remember. Golden accent, we were in Toronto's. So actually, like, walking that back a little to take my word. Thing that hit me with take my word and then continued to hit me all the way through all the other bonus tracks that are from these long view sessions is just how completely ass the sound is on all of them. Um, you know, and part of that, I've been raving for six episodes about the greatness of Peter Buck's production. And, you know, so like, okay, well, here's what it sounds like without without him behind the board. Um, but also, like, with this Longview farm, did they, are they still using the same recording equipment that the Stones used and it just has not aged well? Because, I mean, like, really, this stuff sounds terrible. It sounds like, on Take My Word, it sounds like Hydorn is just whacking an exercise ball with a drumstick. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that we have any proof that he's not doing that. That's true. So I was trying to decide if, if recording in a barn would be a good thing or a bad thing. Because it seems like the acoustics in a barn should be pretty good. Yeah. But maybe that doesn't transfer to how you, maybe if you don't mic it correctly, it sounds crappy. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a... Yeah, giant rabbit hole you could go in. It kind of depends on what you want it to sound like. Um, sometimes you want a dead room. Sometimes you want a live room. Whatever well, the I, fuck. I always want a live room. <laughs> I want a dead room. Whatever technique they were doing there, it wasn't working. You don't um, often say, like, I want it to sound like it was recorded on a cassette four track <laughs> and then dubbed onto a different cassette. Yeah. And then play and then play through a shitty boombox. Right. That's probably not the progression they were looking for. These, all of these outtakes sound like things I recorded in my twenties on boomboxes in cattle barns. So one thing with this song too, this is with "Take My Word." When I see that phrase associated with J for R, I just immediately always think of on Trace, um, the last song where they're covering uh, Mystifies Me, the, the, yeah, faces, the faces song. Right. There's like a line, you know, one of the lines there is like, I'll take your word. Um, but like, so like I saw this song title and like, that's what I was thinking. And like, that's just unfortunate because that Sunvolt cover is, you know, perfect. And this song is just... At best, like, kind of a farty afterthought. You know what the sad thing about that Sunvolt song is? I don't think I realized it was a cover until, like, 2000. Well, because it sounds so perfectly... It's like right after I learned that Glad and Sorry, the Golden Smog song, is also a Faces cover. Did you have just, like, a Faces awakening then? I Kind of. I, I do kind of feel like the Faces are, like, a later-in-life band for me. That, they were definitely for me. Yeah. That, uh... But that's always kind of awesome. You know, it's like you find this chest full of just treasure that you didn't know was there. And they have an album called, like, A Wink is as Good as a Nod I, to a Blind Horse. I love all their stupid album titles. <laughs> that, I mean, like, to me, like, there's this thing where when when you start looking at, like, the boomer music verse, it's always presented as, like, the Beatles, the Stones, and everybody else. 
And like, yeah, I mean, like the Beatles and the Stones, you know, no shots fired. They both have their their place. But like, I feel like the longer you have to stick in that puddle of music, like it turns into like, well, it's really the Kinks and the Faces that are the really interesting pair. Yeah, I mean, both the Beatles and the Stones have great albums. It just it's hard to define an entire like. There was a lot of music recorded in that era. And yeah. A lot, I guess I don't know if a lot of it was good, but some of it was good, yeah. and like it, it does kind of get overshadowed by by sort of the Sergeant Pepper, Sergeant Pepperization yeah. of music, the, the boomer cult of the Beatles. Anything else to say specifically about "Take My Word"? I, oh, oh wait, I have one more. Excellent. I've been uh, I've been grinding an axe about Uncle Tupelo using the harmonica not as a real instrument but just as like a sound effect that's in key this song 100 percent, 100 percent. it's like a guitar part being played pretty well high dorn whacking an exercise ball and then the harmonica is just like blah, it's in key so it's it like, has a, to be. like a chaos later basically yeah that's but not as cool definitely not as cool and not as cool a name yes that's all I got for Take My Word. All right. You want to talk about Grindstone? Sure. Did you notice that they uh, that they changed one of the lyrics in this version? I, I didn't. I was so focused on the different rhythm and guitar part. What lyric did they change? They changed the part that's always a smokestack cloud to Satan in the form of a smokestack cloud. Shit. Which I actually like better. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's more powerful imagery. I wonder what. So I, I guess I'm curious if that's like a like an addition they made as a like you know middle finger to like Monsanto or something like that, or if that's a if that's like a version of the of the song that it that exists. Well, what do you mean? So if you the original version like always a smokestack cloud, yeah, it, it, you're kind of up on the ante if you say like satan in the form of a smokestack cloud well but i think the demos were recorded first yeah so you know they would have like been they would have had that great image and neutered it or you know not neutered it yes but that's that is true because it it's down. 91 when they recorded these demos yeah yeah so i wonder why they changed it that, it's really weird because that line is so much better yeah no it was, a, it was i had to listen to it a couple times because i was like i don't feel like that's the same there's also kind of a, a cool, like, tremolo effect. That, yeah. I don't know if it's like a ukulele that they're doing that with, or... I, I'm i not sure. I The thing that hit me is, like, the, the album version of that, like, the instrumentation is just so, like, light and peppy. And on the demo, it, it's just kind of leaden. It's like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I wonder if they're if they were going to for like maximum sadness, like they're maybe like we're gonna we're gonna do this really slowly so that you get the maximum amount of sadness. Yeah, but it's actually I think it's actually more impactful if you do it faster and peppier and sing yeah. this like this you know like this song about the grindstone. Yeah, well, because it's I mean for one thing, it the way it appears in the final version on the album, it's something that's like fun to listen to as it bums you out. Yeah, a weird addition, right? Yeah. Like to the to kind of the we're gonna put this on our our reissue. I don't love I I don't love the extended reissues. Like I 
you know, I, we've kind of talked about this every time we finished an album, but like I never feel like you know the the demos and alternate versions like to me i don't think they add much to the listening experience and like even you know even like academically like it's kind of interesting to hear how a song develops but just kind of you know like so i would much rather that they put on more covers like yeah. i want to be your dog yeah. like like that's a cool thing to do yeah um and also sadly my first i think experience with the stooges which you know in the mid nineties in like 25 years after they recorded the song. Yeah. The Stooges are infamous for not getting their due That's until, right. until way later. It was before so. Iggy pop started to like steal Anthony Kiedis's life force. <laughs> Something's got to keep him alive. They're morphing into the same person. <laughs> like it's, it's uncanny. Like, I mean, how old is Iggy pop? 70? I think he is. Yeah, he, I mean, he moves around like a 25-year-old. Anthony Kiedis is probably 50. He looks like he's 70. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad that your Anthony Kiedis streak. Is That's over. right. <laughs> you planted the seed with that, that throwaway under the bridge line. And I'm, I'm going to keep it going for eternity. Season two is going to be four Red Hot Chili Peppers albums. <laughs> Can oh. you imagine how... Terrible that would be if you and I sat through how surly we would be oh, about Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, here's the difference when Dave Navarro was part of the band. <laughs> I'd be dead of alcohol poisoning by, by the second album. Just shame. Yeah. Since we since we started into I Wanna Be Your Dog, you wanna, yeah, wanna wade yeah. into that? Um yeah, so originally Stooges song, Stooges Rule. I have a note here, the second thing. I have on you know to discuss on the song. I wanted to just ask you flat out, what do you think of Iggy? Where do you stand on Iggy? I like Iggy. Uh mostly because when we went to see him perform a couple of years ago probably. Yeah, I think it was sixteen. Yeah. And like he really brought the he really brought the thunder. That was an astonishingly high energy show for a dude who was, you know, in his late 60s. Yeah, and, and was shirtless for 90% of the show. Yeah. I just remember that one of my takeaways was that the show was awesome. My other takeaway is there was a guy sitting behind us who had to be in his late 60s wearing a, like, vintage MC5 t-shirt. Yeah. And I'm just like, that guy has seen some shit. <laughs> like, yeah. There's some hard, there's some hard years on that body. You see, he'd be, he'd be a good guest on the show. I, I I doubt he's still alive. <laughs> uh, Iggy is I don't know like I've just I've been kind of fascinated with him over the past few years. Um, any musical interest that I have, like you know, every road leads to him eventually. Like if you go nuts about Bowie, well, you're gonna end up with tons of Iggy in the '70s. If you you know if you trace the roots of punk back at all, like it goes straight back to the Stooges, and you know like I. Uh, read please kill me the oral history of new york punk a few years ago and like half of that book is just iggy being a total piece of shit you know in the streets of new york um and that's part of what's so fascinating is like he's talented and important and like as he exists now he seems like a pretty cool guy but he also seems to have had these phases in life of just being fucking awful 
Kind of like the Lou Reed model. Yeah, exactly. And it, same book. Ah. It's also being a fucker in there. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, he's he's tough to figure. Yeah, I always find it difficult when you like when you you like aspects about people, and then you read more, and you're like, wow, this is this is this is really just not a good person. Yeah. Well, and and the thing with Iggy too is like. He seems to have kind of discovered how not to be awful. And, you know, but then you're like, well, am I just seeing that because I want to see that? Is that. Well, I mean, I when know. was the last time you saw an interview with Johnny Rotten? Oh, fuck him. Like, like, that's a guy who just never learned how to not be an awful human being. Right. Like, yeah. he's the case study in, like, like, just being a pain in the ass for 30 years. Yeah. That- who, who, you know, who has occasionally managed to channel his awfulness into fantastic music. Right. But then, like... But it, it's just, it's, it's hard to evaluate him, right? Because mm-hmm. he's, like, he's part of, you know, probably one of the most important punk records of of history. Yeah. But, you know, like, he's just a butthole. He just sucks. Yeah. And continues to do so. Like yeah. he, he has not mellowed at all. No, he's he's. I the last interview I saw with him, he was talking about how much Trump rules. You know, and I think it was like some kind of accelerationist thing of like the system's rotten and it's gonna get more rotten even faster. With I'm just you know, fuck you. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess when you've been when you've been quasi pushing anarchy for thirty years, yeah. like. It seems like the lesson you you would have learned was that like these this systems take a while to dissolve. So like, and it ain't pleasant as yeah. it happens. Oh well, okay. But so, what I don't know if you did you check out any of the covers of other covers of I Want to Be Your Dog? Um, I not this time. Like I, I've kind of I just kind of it's in my head as like a song you hear covered a lot. Yeah, there's a there's a pretty cool Joan Jett cover of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. There's a David Bowie cover of it that's uh, that's pretty cool. Do you know what era? Like when he did that? Yeah, so it's like uh, early '80s Bowie. Okay. Um, so he's like kind of glammed out. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's really good. There's an REM version of it, which mm-hmm. is like more of your art rock version. Uh, there's a White Stripes version, which is kind of poorly recorded, which yeah. I was I was actually very excited about. But yeah, that seems like a natural mix. And then there's a Kurt Cobain version that's like him just screaming i think i think that might have been the first version of it that i ever heard actually and was like like held that against the song and the stooges for a while it's it's not great like it's um you know kurt cobain's another weird one where it's you're you're kind of honor bound to recognize the, the the place that uh nirvana held in the at least our era yeah but you know, like some of the stuff that, that he came out with was just terrible. I honestly, like, I wasn't super into Nirvana, like, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of like them less as time goes on. I I don't know, like, the whole Cobain, like, I'm working to be famous, but oh, fame makes me sad. I don't know, like, it, I mean, like, I know he legitimately had mental problems. You know, life is complicated. But at this point, like, I would prefer someone, you know, either someone like Jeff Tweedy who, like, figures out how to 
psychologically operate, you know, at this level where everyone knows about you or, you know, not everyone, but your fans know about you and care. And, you know, like, like with some bumps has figured out how to be healthy. Um, That's just living longer though, right? Right. But yeah, the weird thing to me is like, I've moved from this, like Cobain is the model of artistic authenticity to like, thinking, well, why can't more people just be like Freddie Mercury and just, like, really want to be famous and really enjoy it and be a lot of fun? I think you've hit on the key point, fun. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I've met people that want to be famous that are not fun Yeah. and are really, like, business-like about it, and those people kind of just suck the life they, out of... They are not the coolest. So this version of I Want to Be Your Dog, I, I'm usually all for Uncle Tupelo covering old punk songs i think this one is kind of middle of the pack for their old punk covers like it just tweety is singing it really well and for our harmonize as well but again it's kind of plotting like i don't know if there's just something slow in the water out at that farm yeah it might have just been the vibe that weekend yeah i mean it, it sound you can hear just like an ass kicking live version of this struggling to come out if we actually it's, saw the ass kicking live version with with a Jay Farrar show, I don't know if you remember that. I he I'm, he closed with it okay. uh, at one of his shows. That yeah. And I also swear that you can hear a beer can being opened in the first ten seconds of this song. I don't Probably. know if that's just what I want to hear, but well, that's another note that I've got. Like I, the one thing I do love about this version is it's so obviously them farting around. Like about two minutes in, you hear just someone go, "Yeah, yeah." I thought that was like a Bill Wills like, uh, <laughs> like kind of call out. <laughs> Functionally, I think that's what it is. I don't know. I mean, one of the things we should probably talk about is like you know, like what's the, what are kind of the ethical ramifications of of kind of tacking on a bunch of material at the end of your record to get somebody to buy the reissue. Right. That's that, that ain't great. I don't love that. I mean, it's not, I don't have as much of a problem with it. If it's B sides and like different songs, you know, like if I were buying the CD and and I had the choice of paying an extra buck to have access to, to them doing, I want to be your dog. I would have paid it, you know, right. like, yeah. like I'd, I'd be comfortable with that transaction. I, I do like that better than, uh, better than just demo versions of songs that are already there. I guess what I, what I struggle with is most of their pretty hardcore fan base. Yeah. So I think a lot of their fans bought the original records yeah. and then bought the reissues. And it's, I'm sure their fans were happy to do it, but it, it does seem a little bit like you're, you're, you're kind of capitalizing on that. It's, 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 yeah, it's exploitative and it's, it does strike me as interesting that, uh, you know, they as a band had a bad relationship with Rockville and Rockville just screwed them over. Um, and then, you know, it's the Rockville records that get these like soak the fans reissues. I, I don't know. It just how weird is that? That like there's like this weird money grubbing squeeze every stone as much as possible attached to these three albums that, that doesn't seem to be there with Anodyne. Yeah. So like when you one of the things they always say is how they've remastered the albums. Yeah. So what, what does that actually mean? Usually, usually it just means that they redid the CD transfer. Um, Cause what's, what's the master on tape? 
Usually. I mean, something this old, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes people go in and, like, to the original tracks and, like... Like, re like, like readjust the levels and yeah, things like that? but that's... For every one of those, there's nine just like, yeah, well, we'll just resample it with a higher rate and, like, fuck with the EQs slightly as we... It, I don't know. It, it it's it's a scam most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess your stuff was. So I'm trying to I'm trying to compare it to like the the when I was in college, I think the original Star Wars came out in the theaters. Yeah, and they had like redone it and you know, kind of cleaned it up a little bit, and it actually like it actually looks really good on the big screen. And then they did the same thing for the other two, and it was a complete waste of time. Yeah. And, I, and that's a good analogy, really, because, like, I, and, you know, a lot of this is coming out of punk, but, like, I really kind of like imperfections in in media, you know, like, like I, I and I want to be your dog. I love it that you can hear people, you know, yelling in the background. I, I love... I, I just, I like it when, like, things are flawed and you can tell that human beings made this and it's a little fucked up. And, like, remastering that tries to iron that out, I don't like. And, like, I didn't, you know, when when those Star Wars special editions came out, I was excited at the time. But now, like, I would rather watch the original versions with the shittier special effects because, like, that's, you know, those movies were made in 1977 and 1980, and that's what it looked like then. And Certainly more authentic. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, art exists in a context. and I mean, like, I, this is a weird thing, but, like, another remaster thing that drives me nuts. Like, I, I don't like The Doors that much. <laughs> but... <An> understatement <laughs> of the year. But it turns out... I don't like The Doors that much. <laughs> Okay, but here's the thing. I learned through the miracle of remasters that I actually do have Doris preferences. Because, like, I heard a remastered version of Break On Through. So, you know, like, in the bridge of Break On Through, when Morrison is like, She get! She yeah. get! Whoa! Um, so, when they recorded that, he was actually yelling, She get high! She get high! And I heard a remastered version where they, like, restored the, the full thing. And it just sounds dumb and like i guess i prefer the original like neutered version just for its weirdness and because that's what it was um so just just for the listeners benefit keith has been railing against the doors for what the last 25 years that sounds about yeah. right fuck the doors yes thank god thank god uncle tupelo never covered the doors yeah i i i at one point, you even hated the Doors movie with Val Kilmer oh, in it. Oh, because it sucks. And because it, had, it was a it was a glorification of the Doors music. Am I wrong? Think about this. Um, with the wave of profitable biopics about singers, you know, there was Freddie Mercury, uh, Elton John. I, there's supposed to be a Bowie one in. Um, it's just a matter of time. You know, it might be a decade or two. I don't know. There's going to be a point when it is profitable for someone to make a Jeff Tweedy biopic. Oh, I th yeah. I thought you were going to go with Jim Morrison. Uh, well, uh, no, because that one's already there, and it sucks. Yeah. They'll probably make another one of those. But... I mean, you could go really down, or you could go like Towns Van Zandt documentary, <laughs> where it's just like suffering for two hours. <laughs> that would be more interesting. 
But no, I mean, think about this. Like, do you I, think do you think Jeff Tweedy's popular enough though to have a biopic? I think maybe, maybe not. I don't. Yeah, maybe it'll be. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of Wilco fans out there. There are. It's it's almost like a different era though, because yeah. like there's so many more choices in music now than there were in but, the you know like Elton John era. That's true. Maybe maybe there will be a Drake biopic first. I'm sure there will be a Drake biopic. In fact, I mean, it'll be called Start from the Bottom Now We're Here. It writes itself. Um. So just to, just a one last rant about the about the demo versions. Yeah. Did you feel like the the Moonshiner version was just too similar to the album track? Yeah. Because it's a great it's a great song. It really, and I think I said this last time. If you want to highlight Jay Farrar's voice, like this is a great way to do it. It just feels like putting it on the album again, right? Is a little bit of a give up. I think, like functionally, all that does. Is so you know, I th- I think they have that one flagged as a live version, and so all that really does is establish like, yep, they could play it just as well as they played it on the album. But the album is. is I mean, it's not a true live album, but it's sort of a live album, right? Like, yeah. It's like, that's the spirit of it. Where yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, no value is being added with that thing. You know, it's not like you're recording pet sounds and then you're being like, okay, here's the live version of Sloop John B or something, right? right? Like, like it's, you know, it, it's sort of a stripped down bare bones album to begin with. Yeah. You're not, just, yeah, you're not even seeing different interpretive choices. You're just seeing like, yep, that's what it sounds like. Oh, um, want to take a break and then come back yeah. and talk Walton's theme? We are back. Um, Walton's time. It's Walton time. So I actually had to go back and listen to the actual Walton's theme. What did you think of it? Well, first I thought it was a Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass <laughs> song. Okay. Because it's like really horn forward. Yeah. It's not. Uh, it's the Daniel Kane Orchestra, who also did the theme to the A-Team. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Those, those are some good credits. So... I guess my question is, if you're part of that orchestra and you have a concert and you're playing your greatest hits, do you have somebody come up and like give the actual like A team spiel before the? I hope. <laughs> if, if you, you can, can find. find. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so. I I also did a little little deep digging um, and saw that the uh, the theme here. So they performed it, but it was composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who has done a bunch of other things. Um, my favorite is he did the he wrote the theme music for Star Trek the Motion Picture that they then recycled as the theme for Star Trek the Next Generation. And I really wish Uncle Tupelo had done an instrumental cover of that. That would have been sweet. That uh But I mean so that's not it's like someone at Rockville must have had to like track down Jerry Goldsmith's people and the orchestra and like I suppose it would have just been Goldsmith's people, but you know, like they must have gotten royalty checks. Yeah, it's not old enough to be in the public domain, so. Yeah, that uh, 
had your music career taken off and you kept performing that theme from the fall guy, you would have had to pay Lee majors, right? Very true. I would have happily paid or I, I don't know who wrote that. Um, he sang it. Though, yeah. Right? And he sang it really well. Uh-huh. That was, I mean, that, that that's a thing I was going to talk about in the shadow of this song. Like, I don't understand for sure why they chose this, but there are some TV themes that are pretty good songs. And the fall guys, one of them, I think the Dukes of Hazard is a, pretty kind of kick-ass Waylon Jennings song. Yeah. Maybe that's it, but that's, you know, that's two strong ones. Well, okay, so The Waltons was kind of a cheeseball show that ran from 72 to 81. I remember being a kid in the 70s and 80s, and, like, it was just a received thing that this show was important. You know, I don't think we ever watched it, but we were aware of it, and there would be, like, John Boy jokes was that, I mean... The jokes, sure. yeah, but no, I don't think I've seen a single episode of The Waltons. No, but it was there. It had, like, this cultural presence. Yeah, I don't know if maybe... I mean, I remember, like, Little House on the Prairie being oh, on fuck, all that the thing time, was a titan. But I don't remember The Waltons ever being on. Yeah, and, and The Waltons seemed like kind of like this weaker version of, you know, like the same kind of... Well, I mean, no Michael Landon. Well, right. Did have, I don't know, like, I can't even remember the guy's name. The guy who played John Boy went on to be on The Americans. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've seen him I've seen him act on the stage, too, some, like, family drama play. He acted the shit out of it. I, I actually thought he was kind of terrible on The Americans. But... <laughs> I don't know. I, that, we'll talk about that offline, <laughs> I guess. That might, that's, like, maybe too many digressions away. I don't know. Like, So what do you think? I, I saw... I've been holding this in my pocket as we've talked about the ethics of uh, of reissues with bonus tracks. I saw a review of this reissue that was just apoplectic about how including the Waltons theme on an officially released Uncle Tupelo album was just such a travesty and was like dirtying everything Uncle Tupelo stood for. Uh, what do you think of this? Well, I mean, I guess my first... My first reaction is like they didn't have a better something better they could put on there. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it like tarnishes their legacy to put the Waltons theme. Like, if they put the theme to a show that you liked, you'd be ecstatic. If they did the theme from Cheers, right? Fuck, be... How awesome would that be? Like yes. Jennifer Hart saying, "Wouldn't you? Go? Yeah, want to know." I mean, you'd be you'd be super happy if they yeah. did Greatest American Hero. Like, like you'd be if they did the theme from the Fall Guy. Any any theme outside, you know, like so. I think maybe that's and part of this is, and I was definitely guilty of this in the late '90s and early 2000s. But like, there was this thing where you had to like keep it real yeah. aesthetic and. Like, I feel like that's what they're doing. Like, they're just taking any degree of whimsy out of the equation. Yeah, I agree. I I kind of love the tradition of bands getting... I mean, I don't know that they were shit-faced when they recorded this, but I think it's... Anytime you're recording the Waltons theme, there's a good chance you're shit-faced. I kind of love it when, like, weird things float up to the surface on, uh, you know outtakes collections like i 
dragging R.E.M. on stage again on R.E.M.'s Dead Letter Office collection of B-sides. It ends with them just getting hammered in the studio and playing King of the Road. Roger Miller? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. Like, uh, they don't know how to play it. You can hear Mike Mills just yelling the chords out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the liner notes for that album... Peter Buck says, like, if there's any justice in the world, Roger Miller would be able to sue us for all the money we have. Um, you know, but, but like, I've always loved that because, like, I, I, it's just nice to hear a band that takes themselves kind of seriously, like, just be a bunch of idiots. Yeah, that, the Husker Du cover of the Mary Tyler Moore Totally, theme? yeah. Like, more of that. Yeah. Like, more just silly TV songs. I mean, that that's one of my favorite, like, 80s videos because it's just it's it's just them playing the mary tyler moore theme song and just walking around minneapolis like that's the whole video what what more tourism ad do you need for the city than that uh, yeah i don't i mean like this isn't essential you know like if i had to make a list of the most essential uncle tupelo songs this would be towards the bottom but i'm glad it's out there it's one of those things like you're like it would be neat if they had put on like, so, like, you bought, like, just to use Jeff Tweedy, like, you bought Mermaid Avenue, and they did a reissue, and they took the four best songs from Mermaid Avenue 2 yeah. and made those your, like, bonus tracks. Like, those would be some pretty good bonus tracks, right? You would think. But just how economies work, they don't, if they have four good songs, they, they find eight marginal songs and put out another album well so that's a thing i mean that's kind of a good thing maybe to to edge into wrapping up the whole reissue thing and you know i don't know bring some bigger stuff onto the stage what do you think where do you think the line is for like recorded material that should just stay in the vault you know like and it's different with live artists and dead artists because what's in the back of my mind here is that i know that there's a tsunami of unreleased prince stuff it's going to be coming our way forever now. Um, you know, and that's different because he's dead. But, like, it's a little similar just in that, like, every artist has shit that they record that they don't want to use. And I mean, I, I guess I just, I think about, it's a, I don't, I don't know if I can identify where the line is. Yeah. But it's like you see, like, Jimi Hendrix. You see, like, his estate continuing to release greatest hits materials, which are just songs that you've heard on other albums yeah and like to me that's you know that is somewhat i mean it probably doesn't hurt his legacy because he's dead he doesn't have anything to do with it yeah but it just it seems like a money grab type thing yeah it's a it totally is yeah i I mean i know that's what it is it just is it's hard for me to separate that yeah so i don't know i mean you're talking to a guy who you recently bought the uh LP version of The Last Waltz. Okay. So I probably don't have a leg to stand on. Well, so did the LP version have different cuts? Is it, no, it's the, it's, it's the, the whole, original. It's the, it's the, it's the whole thing. Okay. Just start to finish. Well, but I mean, so even that, like there was, I don't know how many different releases of Johnny Cash at San Quentin there have been. Um, there are four that I know of. And I know at one point I had what I think was the third one that I thought was the whole show was complete. And then like 
they reissued it again with more show. So <laughs> like you never know. Yeah, I just I I feel like the artists usually have a pretty good filter for that. Yeah. Into what what's their what are their best twelve tracks? Yeah. And it, it's rare that the bonus materials are are uh, are worthwhile. Although yes, occasionally, I, yeah, like those sugar B sides were pretty good. Really good. Um, I actually, I I think the originally released version of Ziggy Stardust is okay, but if you get the one with all the B sides, like that's where most of the gold is, except yeah. for Ziggy Stardust. Daydream. Well, yeah, I, and uh, you know, I mean, there are obviously there's a couple of great songs mm -hmm. on on, but like. Velvet Goldmine, you don't get unless you get the B-sides or John, I'm Only Dancing. Or, I don't know. There's, I, I don't know how I feel about U2 anymore, but Octung Baby is like the one album that I still will kind of ride for. And with that, like a lot of the B-sides for that are better than what's on the album. So, I mean, sometimes these reissues with extra shit are good. Isn't that like 25 U2 albums ago, though? Yeah. No, yeah. they... <laughs> they... The, the good guide for you too is like if I'm a voting adult, <laughs> you don't want that out. But no, it's not even that. It's it's just it, if it's not Octung Baby <laughs> and maybe Zeropa, you don't want the album. We're way afield. Yes, as always. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Any wrap up thoughts about March outside of the? So I, I feel like I've just spent the last hour shit talking the uh, the B sides, but it's it's a really good album. It really is. Um, and I think it is an album that was important for me to listen to when I was uh, more impressionable because it got me comfortable with uh, with like the next step listening to like a like that Graham Parsons GP yeah. Grievous Angel. Totally. And so it, it really opened a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of avenues for me in yeah. terms of like different kinds of music. It's I I, I would say same across the board like it just it changed my idea of like what was okay and what wasn't and it you know just listening to it now like i've been listening to this record for 25 years and like as we've gone through it like i've learned a lot by paying close attention to this just about how you would minimalistically put a song together or how you would sequence an album um i don't know like it just it really is crazy how well crafted this thing is yeah, it's a, it's a great record. I mean, there's, you know, it it is unfortunate that we we had to close it out with kind of a, a slew of negativity. Uh, you know, that just highlights how good the album tracks are. I guess we can wrap her up. Yeah, let's um, do it. On to Anodyne. Yes, that's going to be pretty rad. Yeah, I think that's going to be a fun one. Uh, hopefully, we'll find things to say other than just like, yeah, oh, this is great. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, this is great. That's because that's what people want to hear is two middle-aged adult men just turning into fanboys. <laughs> I think that's pleasant. I'll I'll, I'll keep yeah I'll keep my nasty edge. Um, yeah, so we'll be back with Anodyne before too long. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I am Keith. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. You can find me on Twitter at at Cook6252. We would love to hear from you if there's anything you like or don't like about what we've said. Um, I feel like we've put a lot of chum in the water tonight. Um, you know, if people want to fight about 
Kurt Cobain or the Doors or the Waltons or Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I should point out that a friend of the show mentioned that I've been butchering the pronunciation of uh, a Missouri city. I was calling it Socket Wind, and it's actually Sauze. Is it really? Yeah. Fuck, I've been... French it, they French it up. Weird they don't do that with St. Louis, right? But right. Whatever. Don't. Or <laughs> you are saying this two blocks away from Nicolette right. Avenue. Um, it is un-American to pronounce French words. You, you're sitting across the <laughs> you're sitting across the table from Keith Pilly and not Pillet. I thought it was Pillier. I'm not even sure, but it whatever it is, it's whatever the actual French version is. It's being murdered in my mouth. Yeah, I just I mean you know like I my hope and this is this is probably just petty of me, but like my hope is there are, there are a lot of people in you know like Red State Missouri that are like. You don't even know how to pronounce the name correctly. <laughs> it's so, like I'm supposed to French it up, but like you know, like you can't have any immigrants. <laughs> Let's go down there and do some man on the street interviews to find <laughs> this out. That'd be great. You'll find me murdered. <laughs> what a way to go! Oh, um, if you dug the show. Uh, and liked our pronunciations of things, please tell people about it. Go to iTunes or Google Play and leave a review. That helps people find the show. Um, I've noticed our listenership is going up, and that rules. Uh, so please help spread the word. It's good to poison people's minds with our shit. Um, thanks, and we will talk to you again soon. Adios. Well, I'm not the kind to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with Farrah. I've never been with anything less than a nine. So fine, I've been on fire with Sally Field, gone past with a girl named Bo. But somehow they just don't end up as mine. It's a death-defying life I lead. I take my chances. I die for a living in the movies and TV But the hardest thing I ever do Is watch my leading ladies Kiss some other guy while I'm bandaging my knee I might fall from a tall building I might roll a brand new car Cause I'm the unknown stuntman That made Redford such a star Spent much time in school, but I taught ladies plenty. It's true, I hire my body out for pay. Hey, hey, I've gotten burned over Cheryl Teague's blown up for Rocky Welch. But when I wind up in the hay, it's only hay. <laughs>